Welcome to Nutrition for Life, the podcast that goes beyond your plate, brought to you by Herbalife Nutrition. From food waste, food safety and sustainability, to the rise of plant-based protein alternatives, dieting, food labelling and the cost of food, we've got it all for you in this series. And in this episode, we're discussing the obesity crisis that's affecting the whole of Europe. To give you an idea of just how serious it is, a recent report by the World Health Organization found that almost 60% of adults across Europe are overweight or obese, almost one in three school-aged children are overweight, and not a single EU member state is on track to reach the target of halting the rise in obesity by 2025. Well, to chew through all of that and more, I'm joined by Professor Maria Hasipidou from the International Hellenic University. Maria is the national coordinator in Greece for the World Health Organization's European Childhood Surveillance Initiative and also chair of the Nutrition Working Group of the European Association for the Study of Obesity. Hello, Maria. Good to have you with us. Hello. I'm, I'm very glad to be with you. And also joining us today is Professor Paul Gately. He runs the More Life program at Leeds Beckett University, which is now one of the largest specialist training and services provider for tackling childhood and adult obesity. Professor Paul, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So before we speak to Maria and Paul, as always, our producer Steve Bland has been out and about to find out how some parents try to make sure their kids eat healthy food. That's hard. So you can make packed lunches, they have packed lunches, so we make those, but still, you don't know what they're buying in the canteen at school. Uh, make sure there's nothing on their balance, but still they'll go overdrawn, maybe, and buy little things. So I think it's just having healthy choices in the house, so when they do want a snack and something to eat, they can have it, but also not say no to things, because then it becomes a bit of an obsession that they want those things. So just making sure it's balanced. Don't buy crap, don't have it in the house. Nag them a lot. <laughs> the problem is our kids are now young adults, teenagers with their own pocket money because they work and so they will go to fast food places and I find wrappers in their rooms and I have no real control over that but I just don't buy rubbish in and try and cook proper meals. Yeah, it's more of a case of before when they were younger you could control what they eat. Yeah. Um, but now that's more difficult so it's a case of trying to lead by example mm -hmm. which we're not always brilliant at but that's probably the way to do it well my kids are a bit older now but when they were younger um i used to send them for a school lunch at primary school so they had a proper meal with vegetables and then when they came home i'd always give them a proper meal again with vegetables so i always knew what they'd had thank you steve well, Maria, we heard some pretty shocking statistics uh, that about 60% of adults across Europe uh, and also a third of school-aged children are either overweight or obese. Why is it such a colossal pro problem? It's true, it's a, it's, it's a huge problem. And uh, I want to start by saying that uh, obesity is a disease. And um, what is the reason that we have this problem, what we call the obesogenic environment? And um, uh, actually, the relationship between our health, 
our food and the environment, it dates back centuries. And since I'm Greek, I have to start by saying that Hippocrates first said that let your food be your medicine and medicine be your food, and highlighted actually the need for harmony between the individual and its environment. Uh, starting from that, I would say that the term obesogenic environment, it mainly refers uh, to the influence that all our environment, the surroundings, um, the opportunities and the condition of life uh, that actually have on affecting and promoting, I would say, somehow obesity in individuals or in populations. Um, and I want to give some examples. For example, we have increased availability, accessibility and affordability of what we call energy dense foods. And what we also I think the most important to mention is over processed foods, that there is a very strong relationship with obesity. Um, and on the other hand, and of course, we have an intense marketing of all this, of this type of foods, I would say. Um, and then we also have, um, uh, on the other hand, on one hand, we have, uh, let's call it uh, bad nutrition, if I can use this term. And then on the other hand, we have uh, the problem with uh, decreased physical activity. And physical activity has many health benefits, as we know. And yeah. is the key determinant of energy expenditure. And after all, a main cause if we have uh, low physical activity of obesity. And we do know that children, because we've done a lot of work with the COSI, the Childhood Obesity Surveillance Initiative, and we just uh, published, uh, we're about to publish actually, uh, the latest uh, report on the fifth round, as, uh, the latest round. And what we've seen that physical activity has played a very important role. Okay. Well, let me come back and we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Um, Paul, uh, does that match what your research shows us about why we've got such worryingly high levels of obesity? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I'm really fortunate as a sort of an academic in the UK uh, out there delivering national level programmes to help children that live with obesity. Uh, we're really lucky to have colleagues like Maria doing fantastic work across Europe because Maria and her colleagues are providing us with the data of the levels of overweight and obesity and some of the understanding of the drivers. And that's really important for those of us that are at the forefront of working with children, working with families, working with policymakers across England uh, is, is, where I, is where I primarily work to deliver intervention programs. So, you know, absolutely the, the information around diet and physical activity as the two behaviours which influence children and young people is critical. And our work is really about how do we understand those children, how do we understand the families, how do we understand the dynamics of their families, where they live, what are they susceptible to, why are they vulnerable, and so on and so forth. And 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 then that enables us to unpick those those component parts and say, okay, for this particular group, we need to design these sorts of interventions. For this particular group, we need to design these sorts of interventions. So, you know, in a sense, whilst not planned for, there's a real strong coalition of action across Europe with colleagues like Maria providers with that really rich data that people like me as professors can then design intervention programs. And the one thing I do want to sort of point out is that not everybody's suffering from obesity despite the obesogenic environment that Maria talks about. And so then we say, well, okay, well, why is that? And our work really shows us that children that, and families that face financial challenges 
children and families that face social challenges uh, where they are, where they live, children that face vulnerabilities around mental health and maybe family challenges are then much more susceptible. And one of the big problems we face across Europe, uh, but globally, is that because of this disparity between those different groups, what we tend to find is those more vulnerable families financially, emotionally, psychologically, socially, are much more likely to have obesity and suffer from much higher levels of obesity. So, so it's not just everybody's at risk. It's trying to, in my world, trying to say who's at risk and what do we need to do for them and with them. And it's not to them. And I think yeah. that's a really important point as well. This is about working with families, working with policymakers, not wagging our expert finger at families. Um, Maria, does that match with what you're finding that often deprivation, uh, either um, financial or social, is a really big factor um, and that perhaps people, you know, it feeds into what you were talking about, about the environment. If people find that they can pick up some junk food that's pretty quick and is pretty cheap, um, critically, then um, that's going to be a big temptation, particularly for parents or individuals who don't have much time or much money. That's true. And uh, thank you for, for, for bringing this up, Paul, because we just, uh, as I told you, analyzed the latest um, COSI results. And the most important factor was related to socioeconomic status of the parents. And it was a very close relationship with every, every European country. And we're not talking only for EU countries because we're looking at countries in Europe like uh, Kazakhstan and other countries in uh, next to Russia. And we found the same relationship because we usually keep on saying that countries that are, um, you know, let's call them richer. This is more common, but it seems it's everywhere in all European countries. Uh, and it's related, uh, as you already said, with uh, socioeconomic uh, status. You were talking there about interventions um what exactly does that mean i mean you're not going into the uh going into the kitchen and saying stop <laughs> don't put that in there uh, how does it actually work uh, we're not quite doing that but we're not far off doing it because because actually it is at the level of the family um now maria's talked about this obesogenic environment and of course there are you know i do work like i'm sure maria does with policymakers trying to sort of look at how do we address some of those sort of environment around marketing and, and food availability and food price? So there's a lot of work going on at that level. Um, and I'm engaged in that with, with some of my academic colleagues and policy workers. But, I, but the large majority of the work that I do and with my colleagues is working with families, understanding families, understanding the differences between families. Because if we don't understand that family environment, we can't effectively help people. So, so in some sort you actually go in and talk to families or school groups, do you, and and explain are, what what are, they can do to tackle this? We are absolutely working in schools. We are working with schools. We are understanding the needs of schools. We are then identifying children within schools, and they self-select for programs that we offer. And then after school, just like some children would go and play football or basketball or tennis or drama or arts, some children will come to healthy lifestyle sessions with us and we will have coaches there that will do some physical activity. We'll have, we'll have do cooking classes. We will do sessions with their parents. 
So yes, we are directly impacted on their lives. And then in other areas, we have community groups on maybe a Saturday morning that families will come to. We'll work with them. We'll teach them about cooking. We'll help them read food labels so they can understand, you know, what what actually we assume is really simple information, but it's not. For many people, they're so bamboozled by all the calories, protein, fat, carbohydrate. You know, they are just confused. And and actually, when we start to unpick that for them and say, look, this is important. This number is important. And it's, a, it's relevant to this as part of your lifestyle. They start to understand it. This physical yeah. form of physical activity is really helpful. You know, you don't have to just go to a gym and build big muscles. Going for a walk or going to play in the park as a family is, is really beneficial because, you know, um, because many families don't understand that. They see these messages that say, you know, they have to eat carrot sticks and lettuce leaves and they have to run marathons every day to be a healthy weight. And that just isn't true. And so, you know, a lot of the time we're re, re, um, we re-informing and overcoming poor messages that are out there that many of these families are susceptible to. And Maria Paul was talking earlier about the need to work with people rather than finger wagging. But the role of governments is quite important, isn't it? And we've got these targets for getting obesity falling. I mean, are there some governments uh, around Europe that are getting things right or at least having more success than others? First, I want to say that what was happening in Europe, uh, mainly on uh, childhood obesity, where there's not much difference with adult obesity, is that we see some changes. That means that we had the southern European countries with a higher percentages, although it's not uh, so easily to understand, but can explain it later. The southern European countries with a higher uh, prevalence of childhood obesity. Uh, for example, Cyprus and Greece, that are the first two countries in Europe, they have something like 40% in the ages of, of in school ages. So you can understand the, the, the importance of the problem. But what, what we see, which is pretty interesting, is that the last we, we're running COSI uh, the last 10 years, 15 years nearly, and we do see uh, a change. That means that in the Southern European countries, we see a decrease and I will explain that later, whereas we see uh, a stability, let's call it like that, it doesn't change, or it's a little bit changed, going a little bit uh, higher, increasing, in, um, uh, it becomes, it's really stable in Northern European countries and a, high, a small increase in Eastern European countries, um, to say it right. So uh, there are changes and there are countries that are going better. For example, we are uh, very proud of the Southern European countries that went quite well the last decade. That doesn't mean that the problem is not there. I want to, 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 to make that clear. I don't think any country is successful in really reducing the prevalence. We see a very, very small, like something 1% or 2% in some countries, but then unfortunately, the next round, we don't see it again. Um, and some people might be surprised that these southern European countries have such big problems because we always think of them having this healthy Mediterranean diet. But yeah. I guess the, the problem is that people are moving away from that. Exactly. The main problem is that they are moving away. And the second problem is that we didn't have such good interventions, as Paul mentioned, in these countries. We thought everything was fine. We have a very good nutrition, everything is okay. And then we realized it wasn't that good. And secondly, we found that the children in these countries, I mean, uh, that 
that is the same the same pattern in all uh, southern european countries i've been in malta some, and i've seen the same pattern in cyprus in greece in italy that the children they don't exercise that much uh, if you compare them with uh, northern european countries they go to school by their parents they go by car they are overprotecting the children until the age of i don't know 20 so they're overprotecting the children they feed them a lot because they think that this is healthier and we, i mean in, it's a very clear model of, of, of an extended family that the grandmother is feeding the grandchildren. So, uh, and uh, this is this is the case. Uh, so we do see uh, this, this picture and it's becoming pretty common in most European countries, in most Southern European countries. Just to answer the other part of your question, what can we do? Uh, actually, I think that something is clear to understand is that we need a multi-sectoral approach. That means I mentioned before the unhealthy environment. So at, at, at a country level, uh, we need to have, as I said, comprehensive and multi-sectoral approach. That means we have to, if possible, to attack all the determinants um, that really cause the problem. And at the same time, something that I find it very important is that we have to strengthen the health systems. This is another area we didn't discuss because the family is very important, everything is very important, but on the other hand, we need to have a very strong health system for prevention and for treatment. So the last few years, we're looking towards strengthening the health system in the different countries. Paul, clearly government state interventions are always going to be quite controversial, aren't they? Aren't they? You know, governments don't want to be accused of uh, being the nanny state, telling us all what we should and should not eat. But for example, in the UK, when after much debate, we got this sugar tax, which made some drinks with lots of sugar in them um, more expensive, the producers did actually then just reduce their formulation so that there was less sugar in it. So what do you think about the role of government, Paul? Well, I mean, I I get confused with the, the language around a nanny state. To me, a nanny is somebody that cares and it cares and, and a nanny tends to care for younger people that need some help and support. So actually, I don't understand this terminology of government being a nanny state because a caring government for its and caring for its citizens is for me a good idea. States that don't care for their citizens is a bad idea. So, so, so that's that one level. I think what the actions that they take on behalf of caring then needs to be considered in, in an appropriate way. So there are a number of things that governments can do. And one of the things that on, on, on obesity they can do is change the attitudes. What, what we've had from our governments for a long time um, is a view that people bring obesity on themselves, despite the fact that most people with expertise in obesity would say, people living with obesity are vulnerable to a toxic environment, okay? So it's not that they go out, it's not that they're lazy or greedy or stupid, or it's that they are responding to their day-to-day challenges. And one of the ways that they're responding is they are consuming too many calories for the amount that they're burning off. And so weight gain and obesity are the outcome. So, so from that perspective, but what, what lots of our governments have talked about is individual responsibility rather than our collective responsibility 
to look after our citizens. So, so, so for me, government's language could change. Um, and we've started to see this in the UK. Uh, and I think there are other, you know, there are some more progressive areas across Europe and some less progressive areas across Europe. But, but language around, um, around obesity is not an individual choice, but is a reaction to a toxic environment is the first shift in our mindset. Sorry, Paul, I just wanted to pick you up on that because surely this does in the end come down to individual choices, doesn't it? Well, no, I mean, Maria's just very carefully and eloquently outlined to you that there is disparity between some people who have money um, and what we've seen in the UK is those without money, their rates of obesity have increased year on year over the last decade. What we've seen families with money their rates of obesity are going down. And interestingly, there was a huge difference. So in, in, in the UK, we have, we have a, a very strong surveillance program in place. And we've, we've observed during the COVID pandemic, huge variance between the families that live in more deprived communities and families that live in more affluent communities. So during COVID, there was a huge increase in families in more deprived communities living with obesity. And, and there wasn't a great, huge change in those that are more affluent. So, so if, we, if we look at it from that perspective, are we saying that it's their fault for not having enough money in their bank account? Or are we saying that the distribution of wealth across our society is tipping the balance towards some communities? I would argue that because of that difference, you cannot lay that on the shoulders of individuals. Because if, if it was an individual responsibility, then, then there would be no variability between different groupings. It would just be those that are lazy and greedy and those that are not. But that's not what we see in the data. And so, so to me, I would push back quite strongly to say, of course, individuals make choices. Okay, and who are we talking about here? Because actually our conversation has been around children. And are we saying that children can make choices at three, four, five, six, seven years old? Equally, are we saying that parents can make choices? And Maria gave a fantastic example of influential grandmothers, you know, uh, overriding parental behaviors. And as you know, we're all delighted that mums and dads are out working but actually, if, if grandparents then undermining parental choice around food, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm using examples to sort of make the point that we can't just label one particular individual as or one particular group of individuals, either parents as responsible. We have collective responsibility. And I think that's the key point for me. I totally, totally agree. What we keep on saying the last, the last years is we shouldn't stigmatize the individuals with obesity. And I think that makes it clear what we really mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, on that, Maria, there is a balance, though, isn't there, about being honest about the scale of the problem and not stigmatising people. Clearly, you don't want people um, to feel that uh, they are being stigmatised because of their weight. But, for example, Boris Johnson, when he was prime minister, very bluntly came out and said, oh, I was too fat. And I mean, is there maybe, Maria, a case for being a little bit more blunt about these things? Or do you agree with Paul that it's much more important that we help people and make them 
give them the right environment in which they can make the right choices. I totally agree. I totally agree with Paul. <laughs> we, we keep on saying yes to make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And I think that that says everything. That means we should give people the opportunity to be able to, 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 get, to eat more vegetables and these vegetables should not be expensive, to be able to have places for their children that they play and they go out and uh, uh, places that they can cycle and more green areas. And I mean, it's, if we do that, then it's going to be easier for these people. And this is the best way of doing it than going to each individual and try to persuade him that he has to lose weight. And, and here in the UK, Maria, we already have a, um, a, a, a watershed, um, some restrictions on when unhealthy foods can be advertised and so on. But are there governments that go a lot further than this? I mean, in the UK, you still, you know, um, parents right across the land battle every day with a, a big pile of sweets right by the supermarket checkouts, just providing all the worst temptations at a time that their children in particular are perhaps getting a bit fractious. Are, are there countries that are um, much more interventionist when it comes to uh, reducing the temptations on people to go down the wrong path? Maria? Well, now we're having a discussion that is not going to take us half an hour, but I think uh, two weeks to discuss <laughs> our relationship with the food industry. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, it has to do with our relationship with the food industry, and I can talk about it for hours, but what is uh, important is that we have to do our best, but at the end of the day, the things are not so easy uh, because uh, we are living in a, in a free society that uh, food industry is allowed to, 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 to sell whatever they want. Okay, we have some restrictions in uh, um, advertisement. I, I believe most countries, they don't allow uh, advertisement of certain foods, uh, certain areas, uh, sorry, certain hours of the day, etc., etc. So there are some restrictions. But as you already said, the temptation are still there. And this is a very difficult battle, let's call it like that. And... Um, I, I will go back to what Paul said. If we sort of make the environment as healthier as possible, and we do in, uh, try to give our, our, our uh, how can I say, our fights there, I think it's easier to have a better result. And Paul, you go into schools, and you're clearly doing some incredibly valuable work in helping to educate people and to change minds, but. I mean, should our school system be addressing this more, just making people aware of the dangers if they do become overweight? Because we know it puts a huge pressure on the health service. Obesity is linked to so many other more serious health problems. Shouldn't it be just a part of the general education system that people are, are brought up to understand the importance of what they eat and the need to do at least a basic amount of exercise. Uh, no, I agree. And I think, I think as I was trying to say before, that if we, if we take the government leadership, if we think about education being led by government, and this is where government are not as well informed as what they could be, because what we know is that children that live with obesity are more likely to miss school. They're more likely to have poor attendance and because of their poor attendance, they're also more likely to not do as well. And girls particularly will not do as well in mathematics and some of the science subjects. So if I think if schools understood that more, they would be more proactive in helping children and young people 
overcome this because it directly impacts on their KPIs as an educational system. The problem is at the moment, the message we've given is if you, if you do something in your school, it will benefit the healthcare system. And schools are thinking, that's not our job. Our job is to educate children. So if we make sure that schools appreciate that actually children who live with obesity are more likely to struggle in their school environment, then I think schools will be much more proactive. Our educational systems will be much more proactive. And it, it's really the point Maria said that we need multi-sectors to be working collaboratively to overcome this challenge. If it's just seen as a healthcare system problem, then we will only have healthcare system solutions when we do need broader system solutions. Um, Maria, um, Paul was talking, and we've all been talking about how deprivation um, is such a significant factor in all of this. Are you concerned that this cost of living crisis that we're seeing, not just in the UK, but in so many uh, Western countries, uh, tied with the, the energy crisis, which perhaps is pushing up the costs of, of cooking and eating at, at home, eating the, the right sorts of food, cooking from scratch, not having um, fast food, takeaway, face, uh, processed foods. Are you concerned, Maria, that this could make problems worse, that we, we might be going in the wrong direction when it comes to these problems of obesity? I totally agree. I think that uh, the crisis we're facing and uh, we all, uh, you know, we're going to see it, <laughs> unfortunately, this winter is going to, to, to bring problems regarding um, uh, availability of food and uh, availability of uh, cheap food, <laughs> okay, because this is very important. And as we said before, uh, unfortunately, uh, vegetables and uh, fruits and uh, healthy foods uh, are becoming more expensive. And this is something that countries should take into account. So, yes, of course, you are right. On the other hand, uh, I mean, we are thinking uh, in many countries, so we, are, we have a program in Greece, and I believe in other countries as well, that there is an EU program of distributing vegetables and fruits in schools. And this is, uh, come back to what Paul said, the environment in schools is very important because we were giving, for example, in Greece, we do, do that for the last three or four years. Um, with the help of EU, we have a program that uh, in the poorest families, we are giving the fruits and vegetables and milk. So this is, I think, it's, it's a big help. And I think all the, all, the, all the countries should really think towards this direction, how we can help these poor families to survive, and not only to survive, but to have a better nutrition. Yeah, I mean, Paul, just pick up on that, because clearly, you know, you're very clear that it is um, deprivation that is the root cause of so much of this. And now we're looking at those uh, costs, even though we've, we've, got, we've got some help to tackle it. Um, we've still got quite high inflation. The cost of a lot of basic foodstuffs is going up. And of course, the, the, the cost of the, the energy to actually cook properly at home is going up. And, and it's, it's making things harder for schools to provide um, proper meals too, isn't it? Are, are you worried about the effect that could have? Well, I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, the, the implications of COVID on rates of childhood obesity has been significant. The, the UK data shows this very, very strongly. Given the association with deprivation, then, of course, an outcome is going to be, with the cost of living crisis, increases in obesity in those more vulnerable families. That, that is without a doubt. That is without a doubt. And we, have, we are so far behind 
doing anything about this. So, so we will suffer the repercussions of not being prepared to act around the cost of living crisis for people that are more vulnerable and susceptible to obesity. We've just started a three-year research program here in the UK, working with a big supermarket, Sainsbury's, trying to understand from their, from their sort of till receipt data what their purchasing habits are and how, you know, how different groups respond at different times of the year. And we can understand that. So then what's their response in behaviours? And so then what we're going to do is take that data and feed it into our intervention programmes to say, okay, we, you know, we anticipate these might be challenges for you as a family or an individual. Maybe you want to try these programmes. So what we're trying to do is align some of those cost of living challenges into well, what can you do to be more healthy despite those pressures? Because that's the point that... That's the point about obesity and helping people with obesity. It's not, it's not teaching them that a carrot stick or a lettuce leaf is low calorie and, an, and a burger's bad. It's not about what's good and bad. It's about saying in these circumstances, your family, you know, we can help you in this, this and this direction. And that's the critical thing about this. And so, you know, that is for me where we need more help across our system, more investment more leadership from our government um, and more ways in which we can work collaboratively uh, to to address this problem. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound flippant, but Maria, you know, if we can't afford the energy and we've got to keep all our houses a bit cooler and if we all feel we've got to start um, jumping up and down in the living room to keep warm, um, maybe that's going to help. But it, it, it is um, something that that is um, potentially a big problem. And I just wanted to finish, you were, you were talking about health services, um, do you think that perhaps people need a bit more education about the risks they're taking themselves about future health problems if they do um, get overweight? When I, I, I mentioned the health system is because I, we already talked a lot about the multi-sectoral approach. And um, I, what I meant is that uh, all the countries should uh, pay attention both to prevention and to treatment, because prevention, for example, um, can be done in uh, in communities, for example, in the health centers of the communities, depending, of course, on the health system of each country. And as uh, as you already said, it's, everything is becoming uh, more expensive. If you have a free service, for example, for the children that are overweight in the community, in the health center of the community, this is going to be very helpful for the family, because if, for example, the, Paul is doing the intervention in the school and they do find out that there are some children that they need some help, but they don't have the money because they are from um, very poor families. And then there is a community service is going to be easier. And this is the, the why I, I was talking about uh, a multi-sectoral approach. So you should find ways to, 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 to uh, improve the health system regarding prevention, but also treatment. Um, Paul, just a quick thought from you on that point. I, I mean, I can't, I couldn't agree anymore with that. I mean, I think that's absolutely right that, you know, the prevention and treatment are critical. Um, as, as Maria really well outlined, about 40% of children in the UK now suffer from a weight problem. Uh, and, it's, and it varies around Europe from around a third to a bit higher. So we, we, we have a large proportion of our children that need help and that's treatment. In addition to that, we have 60% of our population that are, are at risk um, because we know that if 60, 70% of adults 
have a weight problem. We know that another 30 or 40% of those children now will gain weight in the future. So Maria is absolutely right. It's a really important mix of prevention and treatment. And at the moment, what we have across Europe, there is some slight variation, but you know, my view is that across Europe, we have poor action on both prevention and treatment, and it needs to be higher up the priority list of our politicians, is my view. Paul and Maria, uh, thank you both very much indeed for joining us today. And a huge thank you, of course, to you for listening to this episode of Nutrition for Life, which has been brought to you by Herbalife Nutrition. Check out Herbalife Nutrition at IamHerbalifeNutrition.com for more information. And if you have any questions or thoughts you want to share on anything you've heard in this podcast or to join in the conversation on social media, just use the hashtag Nutrition for Life. And do join us again for another episode of Nutrition for Life, the podcast that goes beyond your plate. Music